Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, and I'm here today with um, my co-host, Chris Bandini. Hello, Chris. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi. This is um, our first time um, co-interviewing. and um, For a very special occasion. For a very special occasion, absolutely. Um, We're here to talk today with um, uh, someone who uh, we both consider... um, friend, colleague, uh, mentor, um, uh, uh, somebody, well, we're really biased um, (laughs) in her direction, but we will try to ask hard questions as well. Um, We're here today to speak with Sandra Buechler. Um, She's been with us before on New Books and Psychoanalysis. And uh, just to give you a little background about Sandra, if you don't know who she is, um, she's a training and supervising analyst at the William Allenson White Institute in New York City. Um, And she also serves as a supervisor at Columbia Presbyterian's Hospital Internship and Postdoc Programs. She's published many books, most of them, I believe, with Rutledge beginning in 2004 uh, with the title Clinical Values, Emotions that Guide Psychoanalytic Treatment. Today, we will be speaking to her about her most recent 2019 publication, Psychoanalytic Approaches to Problems in Living, Addressing Life's Challenges in Clinical Practice, also a Rutledge publication. And um, also, uh, Sandra is now a retired psychoanalyst. Um, She uh, is recently retired, and she's done something that almost no one in the field does, and we hope that we'll be able to speak to her a little bit about this as well, about her decision and her experience um, in bringing her practice um, to a close. And um, so without further ado, Sandra Buescher, welcome back to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, we like to start, Chris, you want to ask the question? <laughs> the, the big question is, uh, Sandra, after, is this, this was book seven? That, this, yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. So, but, so after six other books, what led you to write this book? Well, um, I actually always... Uh, write something in response to the last thing I wrote that I feel incomplete about. I feel like there's more to say and I haven't said it. So I had written something about aging and uh, from the point of view of looking at short stories and how they uh, describe the process of aging. And I felt I had more to say about that. So I started to write the chapter, which is in this book, uh, about aging. And then that uh, led me to think about the problems that occur in all our lives and uh, how a clinician might help someone address them. Mm-hmm. Um, this book, uh, I was really, I enjoyed very much your um writing about and using and, and discussing with the readers 
the imp- the importance of poets and poetry uh, on your thinking. And I know that this is a longstanding um, interest. And I wanted to give the uh, the listeners a sense of um, like who's <laughs> who's in the book, right? Elizabeth Bishop. Now you've used and you know referred to some of her work before. Um, Jane Kenyon, Marie Howe, uh, Mary Oliver, T.S. Eliot, uh, <laughs> Philip Levine, Wallace Stevens, Richard Wilbur, um, Rilke, Dickinson, we don't have to say their first names, um, Auden and uh, Frost, oh, and Walt Whitman. I- I've left out a few, but would you care to say something to us about, like, is there anything that ties these poets together that makes them particularly useful for your um, your your psychoanalytic thinking and theorizing and clinical work? Well, I, I think that the one, first of all, that stands out for me is Rilke in the sense of, uh, it, it's not a poem, it's his letters to the young poet, which uh, in which he, he wrote 10 letters to uh, a young man named uh, Kappas, uh, who was asking the established poet, Rilke, whether uh, he thought that he should uh, go into poetry as his career. And the letters to a young poet really kind of changed my thinking, made me think that uh, think about writing as a career and what it means to be a writer and to be a psychoanalyst at the same time. And uh, so Rilke kind of opened my eyes to uh, what I wanted to do with my own career. And the other poets also, I think, have some sort of wisdom that uh, uh, speaks to me mm-hmm. and that I think is, is connected with being a clinician. Mm-hmm. Uh, they evoke, and that is just what we're trying to do in an interpretation, to evoke an experience rather than just describe something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a poet can evoke in the reader a feeling and an experience which makes the, the thought uh, alive. And that's what we, I think, try to do when we interpret. Yeah, so I, I think the poets have a lot to say to us as interpreters. Yeah, and certainly the impact of poetry or the relationship between poetry and um unconscious communication. Um, you, I have a quote here from the book I, that you wrote, I think what happens in poetry can also happen between analysts and patient. Poetry convinced me that finding just the right words to articulate an experience can electrify it. Now, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions um, in this vein, thinking about the poetry. Um, I know some um, Lacanian uh, psychoanalysts who actually write poems about their patients as a way to engage more fully with the clinical material. And I was, it made me wonder about how do you work with the patient's language uh, in sessions? Um, Have you been influenced at all by any Lacanian thinking um, about language? And have you ever written a poem about a patient? (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I really have not been directly influenced by Lacanian thinking and I have not actually written a poem about a patient, though I write poems about my experiences uh, and my feelings, which obviously can be a reaction to a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, about language, I think that each 
treatment that I've done has been partly a creation of a language with the person, our language, so that it it, it has reference uh, that come from the patient's life experience, my life experience, and our experience together. And we both know what we mean when we say, uh, well, one phrase that I've used is uh, no big deal, a particular <laughs> patient would say about a lot of things that happened in his life, that's no big deal. And that became a kind of catchword for us. And I think when you develop a language together, you are developing an intimacy together. It's a very intimate thing to have a language with someone Mm -hmm. that only the two of you really understand fully. And so language is very important to me. Mm -hmm. Although in this book, I also tried to explore the potential in the non, non-formulated, uh, in experience that's not put into words in a session. Well, that's another, um, I guess I had a question about that, because my sense is that interpersonalists generally, and you're from the interpersonal school, uh, very influenced by um, Eric Fromm and Harry Stack Sullivan, um, and Frida Fromm-Reichman, who you write about the three of them throughout the book, I have the idea that interpersonalists uh, don't uh, emphasize very much the nonverbal because there's seems to be a lack of emphasis on the pre-edible or the pre-verbal. So I wanted to, you know, because you make a strong case that sometimes words, quote unquote, can distract us from significant nonverbal channels. How do how do you work, or how do interpersonalists or both um, work with the nonverbal? Um, can you talk to us about that? Well, first of all, you're right uh, the, that the founders of the interpersonal school uh, didn't write much about the nonverbal. Um, and I think partly that was the era that they wrote in. Uh, the, the preverbal wasn't really written about as much then. But I think it's also that the, um, the Anna Sullivan from, from Reichman didn't want um, a lot of percolating to happen. They wanted to get right to the patient getting better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't have, I would say, the patience for letting the nonverbal uh, develop as much. They were trying to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. At, at least that's the tempo that I understand from their writing. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly true, Sullivan, I think. Well, you, and then you have your interest in emotion theory, um, yeah. which I wonder if that's more recent. I think the, what's his name? I'm sorry, I can't remember the. Calizar, 1970s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that is later than when um, yeah. Frome and Sullivan were writing. And yeah. I wonder if emotion theory, if you could talk to us about it, and I wonder if it plays a role in your thinking about the nonverbal. Well, uh, so. Uh, before I went to analytic training, I worked uh, at the University of Delaware with Cal Izzard on a National Science Foundation grant. We were studying the emotions on the face of infants in their first two years of life and uh, what was the situation that first created anger, let's say, in the baby's face and fear and what would be the age uh, at which you first see these emotions. Um, so I was studying that before I uh, had analytic training, but uh, 
th that theory, that thinking, that thinking about the emotions, the fundamental emotions in human life had a huge impact on me uh, and on my thinking from that point on. And so when I, then when I went to analytic training, um, I started to try to write about sort of the, the uh, joining of those two bodies of thinking. But it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do because Cal Izzard's writing is not about individuals. It's basically about, it's a, he's a social psychologist. Um, so he was writing about patterns rather than individual differences. Mm -hmm. uh, so trying to integrate his thinking about patterns in human beings with uh, a focus on the individual is, is not so easy. But that was where my thinking went. Um, is, is it about the nonverbal? Well, I can say that, uh, not with patients who are on the couch, but I certainly do focus a lot on shifts in the facial expression, the nonverbal expression of, of the patient. Um, uh, and, you know, I was trained by people who were trained by Sullivan and Sullivan believed that you're always, the clinician should always be staying in touch with shifts in the anxiety level of the patient, which you uh, get, you understand mainly through nonverbal uh, cues, like the patient shifting in their chair or a change in the tone or a change in the musculature. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, like, ten like a more classical drive theorist would think about tension yes, states. exactly right. In the room, which are which can be experienced non-verbally, um, Chris, I I want to make sure to to you know get you going here because I know you you have questions and you've also been supervised by Sandra, I, an experience I I have not had. Um, would you mind? Oh, I didn't realize that fourteen years. That's that's quite significant. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, Chris, if that's okay. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, um, in in um, reading this particular book, um, did you have any, um, I guess, what was your, what came up? What did, what did you remember, recall from your experiences with Sandra? I mean, this is, you know, a 14-year supervisory relationship is quite significant, and she's she's grown over time and has developed over time, as have you. And so here's this book. She's just stopped being your supervisor. I, I imagine you had flashbacks, <laughs> too. I, I do. I do. I miss it. I miss it a lot. Um, it's, it was quite an experience. I was very fortunate to to be able to work with her and and to find a spot because you know over over the years I remember there were times when I could you know somebody would say can I get supervision with Sandra or could I can I have a referral or whatever and Sandra just didn't have any have any space you know she had no time she was always booked so I was very lucky to be able to kind of get in there and stay and and um and to learn so many things I mean basically at this point I mean I kind of consider myself a Buchlerian which means you know which uh, which I think does follow in the tradition of Sullivan and Frieda Fromm Reichman and um, and so many things that I mean I could I could point to but but certainly a lot of uh, Sandra doesn't give up right and she's with the patient she never she never gives up she always finds an angle and I remember talking and I think it's in the book where she talks about um, the denial, denial of death uh, or uh, 
Becker's book. And, um, and the sense, especially with disconnected people or people who had kind of schizoid, uh, you know, characteristics of kind of not, not going into a kind of a dead place, you know, and staying alive in the session and, and being alive and kind of, you know, in some way, that doesn't mean that you don't join the patient or be there, but that you always have a sense of aliveness. It's not, it's not futile because so many patients bring in futility or bring in the kind of a giving up sense. And Sandra would never, uh, when she was supervising my patients, ever give up. Um, that was certain, certainly important. Um, I remember one time, um, uh, you know, just, just these creative things, like a patient was very kind of hostile, was always challenging me. And, uh, and, and Sandra said, so just tell them like, you're not here to fight. You're here to, you know, try to be helpful if you can. You know, <laughs> And it's just like that stance of like, look, I'm, I'm here just, just to be helpful if I can, you know, if I can be effective, if not, you know, then, you know, maybe somebody else will, but I'm just here trying to, trying to help out. Right. And, and that was so helpful. And, and just the choice of words. I'm, I try to be, it may not come across here, but I try to be very careful with my words. And that is directly from Sandra, kind of like that you can just find the way to talk about anything, right? And that nothing is off off limits. You can just come up with with the words and bring anything into into the room. Um, that's important. And one other thing, I guess, uh, there's lots of things. But the other thing that that you know gets kind of lost now. Maybe Sandra can talk to this some more. She she mentions it in the book. Is the importance in the interpersonal tradition of the detailed inquiry, and and what that means to conduct a detailed inquiry and the craft of that and the craft of asking questions. And I really feel like that, that changed over the years. And I really learned so much. And I remember first going into Sandra and she said, I take about eight weeks to do a detailed inquiry. And I just was like pushed back. Like, that's just incredible. How could somebody spend eight weeks? And now finally I'm getting towards that. And I feel so good about that. And now I have the, I have the experience with, with supervisees who go, I'll never be able to do that. And I say, well, you know, if you keep at it, you can, it, it is an art form in itself. And um, it, another important thing that Sandra mentions about that is this question, which I start, you know, almost every, you know, time I get a new patient, what situation you were born into? It's a very important question. It's a great starting point. And that's, that's yeah. And just and that just starts things off, and of course, there's many more things you can ask from there. But but that's directly from Sandra, and and I I use it all the time. Wow, I love that. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. I'll I'll probably borrow it too. Um, that's well, yeah, because it just takes a person, just it just takes you it takes you back, and and yeah. And Sandra, can you talk to that about the detailed yeah. inquiry about like what you mentioned in the book about how it sets up kind of it gives you something to do and et cetera. And, and maybe you could speak yeah. to that. I think it's important. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, the question, what situation were you born into is a statement and a question. That's why I like it because it's a statement that we're born into a situation. We didn't create it to begin with. And I, I think that's a, to me, that's a very meaningful statement to make to someone. You're born into a social context, into a family, into a neighborhood, uh, into a culture, into a country. You're born uh, into something. And so I'm making that statement when I ask that question. Uh, but I basically took from my supervisors, who worked with mostly with Sullivan and Fromm, um, that the treatment can have three basic phases. And the first phase of the treat of treatment is kind of history taking. And even though that can be tedious and difficult, and I can't, I couldn't do it with every patient to spend eight weeks 
developing a history with them of their experience in life so far. Um, but it's a basis then for the rest of the treatment. It helps us develop a language. It gives us, as I said, something to do while the transference is developing, in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives us a joint project, and it's doable. A history can be taken. It's chronological. It can help the uh, clinician feel competent, and it can help the patient feel that at the end of this period of time, they have something. They have the story of their life. And even if nothing else happened in the treatment, which wouldn't be what, what I'd want, but even if nothing else happened, they did get something, a coherent story of their life history. Mm -hmm. And so I found that helpful to take that from my supervisors. And then the, there's a moment in the treatment when if you've done this kind of history, and I can describe more what goes into that history, um, when you then have to find a way of working with each patient that's different. That this is one of the difficulties of teaching interpersonal treatment is there is no one method there is no one sort of roadmap for the work. You have to develop a way of working with each person. Uh, at the end of the history taking, you talk to the patient about how you might work together, how frequently, whether on the couch, and some idea of what the goals of the treatment might be. And it's a provisional statement of how to work and what the goals are, because everything has to be, it's an experiment, really. Um, but from that point on, you try something, you try working together in some way. And some people, for example, want to talk about a particular topic for a while. Some people just want to talk about what happened since the last session. Some people want to talk about the last session. Uh, some people want to talk about dreams. Uh, some people want to talk about their feelings about the clinician. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's different with each person, what the focus is, what the emphasis is. And you begin to find that once you have a history. But when you have a history, insights that come up later can be three-dimensional. In other words, something that you understood from the history, something that you understand from the work and what's going on in the treatment and something that you understand from your own counter-transference with the person. If all three feel consonant in some way, then you feel as though both feel, people in the room feel as though this has dimensionality. This is significant. I, um, yeah. No, go ahead. You're well, just, just at the history uh, looks at each phase of the person's life from the point of view of what's going on in their family life, what's going on in their social or interpersonal life, and what's going on in terms of their health and their development. Can either of you or yeah. both of you speak to, um, I'm sort of assuming that not only have you 
practiced this with patients, but you've experienced this. It's it's really unique to me, and it's the first time that I I understood. Oh, so there's this history taking, and then there's actually the establishment yeah. of sort of what I would think of as the analytic frame, yeah. how frequency, you know, exactly right, couch, all that stuff, and then the patients, their idiom. Right or as yeah. Bolas would say, let's, let's you know yeah. their, their character style, whatever you want to call it, then emerges yeah. by what it is they want to want to talk about. But I'm thinking about what yeah. is it like to be asked um, about the experience of being asked a lot of questions to get this detailed history. Yeah. Um, would either of you have either of you experienced this? I I've never experienced this, so I'm I find it very interesting. Like what what is that? What what is that sort of quote unquote pre analytic, if you want to say, um, mm-hmm. or preparatory um, phase? Mm-hmm. What what is the experience of that? Um, I can speak from my experience with uh, an analysis that I had before before I was even in the field, which was happened to be with an interpersonal analyst, which was following a classical treatment, and just the experience of being asked these questions and kind of putting things together in ways that I hadn't heard before. And I'd never been asked those questions. And it was quite, it was quite an astounding experience for someone to put it together comprehensively and to just be interested in like, well, what was your brother? What was your brother like? Or what mm-hmm. were your parents like? And to kind of get into those questions, it felt um, like somebody wanted to know. And I think that's, that's a very important part of this is that often patients have, not all the time, but often patients haven't had the experience of someone being curious about them. And from the start of kind of wanting to put together a, a, a line of some kind of kind of, a, like if you were writing a, like Sandra would say, if you're writing a biography of somebody, right? When we write a biography of, of Bill Clinton or Winston Churchill or whoever, right? They became people over time based on their history. And we're doing that with somebody. And it, and it can be quite a... Um, I don't know, it's yeah. a connected undertaking. It's a joint, a it's a joint project. It's the first joint project. Yeah. Yeah, a collaboration. And that's really missing at the beginning. If somebody just comes in, uh, you really don't have any moorings in a way. And this this is a way to do it. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it is the way that Sullivan, you know, developed at first and Sandra certainly elaborated on, um, that you take a history so that you fill in gaps, right? That, that, that go, getting the gaps and that the patient moves away from difficult areas and that you ask a question to kind of get into those areas. And then you, you know, you do study the anxiety from there. I think if I yeah, have that correct. That's right. right that's, that's correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is noticing what Levinson called the holes in the Swiss cheese. You notice the things that are missing. So if someone doesn't mention their brother and you know, they had a brother, but they tell their whole history without the brother, that's probably meaningful. <laughs> Um, and the other thing about it is that I think curiosity is contagious that having someone ask about your life story your history can make you the patient curious about yourself that the clinician's curiosity is in a sense contagious and as Chris said many people have not really explored their history I mean, this to me, this is this is absolutely fascinating. Um, just just thinking about you know, if from the point of view, which it makes sense to me, if the interpersonal 
uh, emphasis has been on maybe the more the patient as they are as adults now versus you know my my training is very much like who I don't ask a lot of questions right initially it's not that I I I say things but I don't ask questions about well what happened to you then where were you where were you next um, and I guess this this leads me to something. Um, uh, about sort of this book includes a lot of thinking about values, the way that the analyst values impact um, the treatment. In fact, chapter by chapter, it's a grappling with, you know, is, is, do you, does the analyst value this or this, this or this? And what, what does that do to the treatment? Um, uh, you have a, a quote, the analyst manner, uh, you write, conveys an abiding commitment to life and growth. That comes from, um, and I know you've revised a little bit of your thinking, that comes from um, an important article Sandra wrote uh, many years ago, um, Passionate Neutrality. And in part, this book is an exploration of um, you know, it's, I, I, I thought to myself, is this a book in, you know, it's a critique of neutrality, problems with neutrality, but also, um, you know, what, what about, um, what does the analyst actually know? Like we've given up in, in our saying that we're not neutral. We've also sort of thrown out, you know, the baby with the bathwater and saying, well, we don't, we don't know anything. Right. But to go back to the, that quote that the, an abiding commitment to life and growth, it made me recall that the only suicide attempt I've had in my practice was with a patient who started to do much better. And I exuded um, somehow some pleasure in his doing so. And then next week he took every pill he could and slit his wrists. He lived. Um, but I began to think I have more than a few patients who would prefer I not be on the side of life in order to tolerate being with me that when they sense I'm on the other side, uh, which is not on their side, um, sometimes they seem to want to defeat me. Um, so I wanted to ask you, um, can being on the side of life, holding that as a value, um, not always be appropriate? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, it's definitely problematic. And it, it, I mean, I've, I've certainly had people also who are not happy about that stance. And, but I think the more significant problem from my point of view is something that Jay Greenberg once said to me actually about this. He said, what about patients who then are going to dissociate their suicidal or against life aspects in response to you? You won't even know it's happening, which I think is a more serious problem even than patients who are openly upset about my position because that at least we can fight about, we can talk about, we can work with. But I think he, Jay's point about uh, patients may dissociate their, uh, in Fromm's language, necrophilic against, against life uh, uh, side, that is a significant problem. But I think that any stance you take in this is creates some problems and avoids other problems. I don't think there's a way, in a way, not to take a stance about life itself in the way that you focus in a session. Well, I think this is you know speaks to one of these key interpersonal uh, tenets that 
you know, there's no such thing as a neutral position. Like a, a quiet position is not neutral, right? And there's no way that values are going to come across one way or the other, right? And then you just have to work your way out of whatever set of stuff you're bringing in, you know, um, you know, you know. So, so every every stance, like like Sandra's saying, every stance has something you have to work with, and you try to do your best to stay on top of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess, you know, that transference happens anyway. Yeah, as it must. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, in other words, the, tra- the transference develops no matter yeah. who you are. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what, and, uh, you know, and what, what values you embrace the, you know, the, the demand for you to fit within the transference, the patient's transference, uh, the transference is more powerful than our values, perhaps, um, is maybe one way to think of it. Well, I think, I think part of what we can do is try to make those values conscious as we're going to have them and they're going to impact what we focus on, what we see as important to, you know, any sentence that a patient says uh, can be focused on in so many ways or not focused on. Mm-hmm. There's no way not to have, in a sense, uh, a bias about what's important. Right. Right. Chris, did you, I don't want to keep, I've got a zillion questions here, but I know you have, you have questions too, I'm assuming, and that you would want to hear more from Sandra about. Well, there were just a few things I was thinking, you know, about how, how you got to interpersonal, I guess you write about it in the book, but why do you think you didn't stay more in a classical stance? What was it that kind of drew, I knew that, you know, you were working with certain patients. Was that what, what took you away from it? Or No, actually. Um, so when I was in grad school, um, I was working in uh, state mental hospitals and veterans hospitals. And uh, they were very difficult places for me to be. Um, and I spent um, six years working inpatient. And um, I found that no supervisor and no readings were really helping me with the inpatient experience until I got to Sullivan. And for whatever reason, Sullivan's language, which can be very cumbersome for people, and um, it, it spoke to me. And Sullivan was talking about inpatients often, and he mm-hmm. had hope about it. He had uh, the, a sort of belief, I would say, a 1950s American can-do kind of belief that you could reach a, a, a schizophrenic patient, that you could reach someone who hadn't been reached in 20 years. And, uh, and he, he had a, a sense of how. And that, for me, was very eye-opening and I or I was able to get one of my teachers in grad school to give me a year private tutorial in all of the bound books of Sullivan we read them all to get you know together and that made me really feel like well there's something here I really want to explore and it sounds like his work helped you to survive the environment which brings me to this other question about the divergence between some of the other schools that I guess are more insight oriented or more kind of probing into the unconscious and the sense of Sullivan of that the issue is really what goes on between people and what are the problems in living, which I guess becomes a criticism of the interpersonal school where it's about kind of adjustment to reality or adjustment to society, uh, even though from, you know, 
differed from that as well. But that that's kind of one of the uh, critiques that it's too too much too based on adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that I think it's a very important point, and that's a difference between Sullivan on one side and from and I would say Rollo May on the other side both of whom had a lot of suspicion about adjustment to society since they saw society as possibly pathological. Uh, uh, and certainly, of course, they had the Nazi uh, experience in mind, but uh, we don't have to only think of that one experience to see that adjusting to society can be problematic depending on what society you're adjusting to. And both Fromm and May were very much anti-adjustment uh, people. So the interpersonal school is kind of, uh, I would say, uh, bifurcated partly by that one issue. Oh, that's interesting. And, I, you know, I haven't heard Rollo May's name in so long or <laughs> read it in so long. And I was like, was he an inter – he's not an interpersonalist. He's – right? I mean – Well, he taught at White, actually, at one point. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, but uh, I I don't think he would call himself an interpersonalist. No, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's you know it's a very difficult question who's in that tent and who isn't. <laughs> right, right, right. Many people walked through it, but were they really that, members of the? That, yeah, that's right. I, I or they were opposed. They they had uh, kind of opposite types of views. Sullivan and Fromm yeah. had very different viewpoints, and they that's yet true. fall into the interpersonal school. Yeah, yeah. that's. That's that's my sense from reading the book. I was like, wow, very two two very different ideas about about uh, what it means to be human. I think, um, you know, you write in this book about atonement, um, and you have an idea that I had never um, I had never thought of it in this way. The idea that therapists enter the field, some you know potentially enter the field to atone. Um, I thought, well, I know many analysts have entered the field to cure their parents, you know, to cure their mothers and fathers, but I never thought about atonement. What? So I, so I want to ask, what are the sins that drive one into this work? <laughs> well, I guess to be punished further. I, I, <laughs> I guess yeah. I would say the sins could be divided into sins of omission and sins of commission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what mm -hmm. you've done and what you haven't done, <laughs> basically. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and I, I don't know that there's, there are any particular set of sins that are the ones that drive clinicians. But uh, I think we are basically trying to uh, make something into personal good, uh, make it come out well. And so that could be a response to what hasn't gone well, uh, either that we've not been able to do a sin of omission or that we've done that we regret, feel guilty about, ashamed about. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think there's a particular set of sins that are clinical sins or the clinician <laughs> sins, but I, I would put them in the two categories of omission and commission. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a new idea for me. I was, mm. uh, I began to think, what, what am I atoning for, <laughs> and, you know, in this, in this work? Um, 
I guess there's also you well there's so many different topics that go that course through the book I mean chapter mm-hmm. by chapter there's um in you have a chapter on mourning and mm-hmm. I was wondering what um motivated you to write uh to write that that particular chapter I I, and I'll tell you my idea. I mean, I do have an idea in asking the question, um, you know, because recently, right, we've experienced the DSM as including mourning as, mm-hmm. you know, pathological. Um, and I just wanted to ask you what, yeah. W- yeah, what was going on with writing this chapter? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, there's a chapter on grief or mourning in every book I've written. Um, that tells you something right there. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's been a topic in my life, uh, all my life. Uh, I have very strong feelings uh, that mourning is not a form of pathology, that it's important to differentiate sorrow or sadness from depression. That depression is, if you want to say pathological or problematic, but that mourning is part of life, that loss is part of life. And that our, the only question, in a sense, is how we live it, not whether we live it. Uh, so uh, th- uh, there's, there's a, a book that I used to use in the course called The, the, uh, the Loss of Sadness. I'm forgetting the author, but uh, mm. it, it's uh, the idea that our culture has uh, pathologized sorrow. Uh, in in ways that really are detrimental to people because uh, the last thing you need when you're going through painful loss is to also feel that there's something wrong with you, that you're you're going through it. And some writers like Joan Didion, for instance, uh, The Year of Magical Thinking, and uh, John Bailey, Elegy for Iris, have written about the state of mind that they've been in uh, after, during sorrow and loss as being, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's different from their usual experience, Mm -hmm. but it's, but we, we just can't call it abnormal. I don't think so. Um, I have really just one more pressing question, Chris, where, where are you at with, cause we, well, I I had a Two, two more things I think to mention. One is I was wondering how the field or how maybe if patients seem different than when you started. And then I want to hear about your decision to retire and what you may be able to share about that. Sure. Um, do patients seem different? You know, I know it's the thing most people say that patients seem different in some way, but the truth of my experience is no. <laughs> um, I think people are still dealing with the same issues uh, that we human beings have always dealt with. Uh, and they're the issues I, I've tried to write about. Um, so I, I don't really experience uh, patients as, as different. I, I, I've certainly had a broad range of patients. That was something I really wanted. I wanted to be able to treat people at every age level and uh, inpatient, outpatient, uh, uh, private practice, all of that. And uh, I I wouldn't say that I see a fundamental change. 
I think the issues of life are the issues of life, and they always have been. Um, and I think they will be. Uh, the decision to retire uh, was a very, very difficult one for me. Uh, some of it has to do with uh, f- physical problems. I have stenosis. I have back problems. And sitting all day uh, was becoming not only more and more difficult, but the doctors I consulted told me that it was absolutely the worst thing I could do for my health. Nothing could be worse. I could smoke all day and it wouldn't be as bad as sitting in that chair all day. Um, So obviously that had an impact. Uh, And I felt that I wanted to live other aspects of myself, uh, basically while I still could, to travel, to write in a not necessarily analytic writing, uh, to read more, and uh, to study art, which I've always loved, and poetry, uh, and to be other parts of who I am more fully. So that's the sort of positive side of, of the coin. But I really want to devote, I devote a lot of time every day to physical exercise to try to keep my back going. Yeah, it, it's not a totally unusual choice to retire, but it, it seems like many people just keep working. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's something that we don't speak about that often, but people do want to retire or cut back or right. whatever, and it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think, I, I, I've only known a few people um, uh, Donna Orange is one who's uh, written about the process of retirement from her point of view. Uh, but very few people have, in my experience, have written about it. Very few. I, I can't actually think of anyone, um, you know, and it's it's quite it's quite remarkable. I didn't realize that we don't retire. The joke is we're all going to like die in our chairs, right, quote unquote. Right. But you know, Winnicott said, "I want to be alive when I die." You know what I mean? Or at my own death. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. I think that you stand a better chance probably not being in your chair and you're in the in the office. Um, well, I would want to mention Barbara and Stuart Pizer. Oh, okay. Who uh, gave a wonderful? I think it was at a Division Thirty Nine, maybe a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Wonderful panel on retirement and on the issues of, uh, and I don't know if they published that paper. They each wrote a paper. It, it was really terrific. Uh, I think it's it's worth looking into. Well, it's you know it's about it's a termination. So yeah. another, we start our careers and we keep working, and then one day, you know, we terminate. Let's say our own personal analyses, but to terminate our practices is. To, it puts us in touch with, you know, another, it's a loss, yeah. it's an ending. All of those feelings get yeah. revived and have to be, have to be yeah. worked on. Yeah. You know. Well, another important thing I learned with Sandra that she would emphasize was how important time is, mm. right? And that time is kind of a sense that, that we should really value it and have a sense of urgency about it. Mm. And that we're always changing, right? We're always aging. doesn't matter if you're in your practice when you're yeah. 30 or 50 yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that we're always in this constant process of changing and, and aging. And that, that mm-hmm. she really brings that to the forefront as something that also has been left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I 
took that actually from uh, for four years I worked at the Worcester Youth Guidance Agency with children. And my experience working with children was that every minute counted, that every year that a child was not able to function socially and academically was not just a, a lost year, but it multiplied, the losses multiplied, because the further away the child was from health, they were missing out on social experiences and academic experiences. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a real, that's where I think I developed a sense of urgency about time. Mm-hmm. There's also throughout um, the book, I mean, the idea that it's funny, time is like, the, time is something that is real. You can watch the clock and you see it clicking, you know, ticking away. Um, you you take a stance in the book that like you know we back away from saying we know something like it seems really quite related to your being paying attention to time um and um you you say you know it seems we know something about the nature of emotional health that we're not that we don't talk about and of course you know everybody's thinking of what's taken place in the last week and you know um the relationship between emotional health and whether um you write whether whether or not hatred can play any part in it um i wanted to ask you can you talk to us about how you, how if you would um uh, define emotional health and then i also wanted to ask um you know you sort of ask is is hatred a it's a it, where do you stand on hate as a human feeling do we need both love and hate and what can analysts be saying um that we're not uh about uh problems with hatred well i think first of all uh about emotional health i mm-hmm. do think we have something to say and to contribute to society uh we know a lot of the ways that people uh like paranoid ways of living, schizoid ways of living, uh narcissistic ways of living. We know some of the ways that are in a sense deviations from health. We may not be able to all agree on what health is or as Adam Phillips said what sanity is in his book Going Sane, which I think is a really interesting book. We may not have a definition of sanity or of health. But we do, I would say, this is not Phillips, this is me, saying uh, that we have some understanding that we've studied, we have theories, we have clinical experience about the ways in which people can live in a, a, in a limited way uh, that, that ultimately is not healthy. So... Uh, so I think we can contribute that to uh, conversation, discussions about health, uh, what, what we know about uh, the, the patterns that uh, are, are not fully alive and not healthy. Uh, about hatred, um, uh, there's an Olive Moore poem that has the phrase in it, hatred as the strength of the sensitive which has been always a, a, a very mysterious <laughs> line for me. Um, but I think what Olive Moore was trying to get at, and certainly what I would say about that is, while hatred is not something 
I mean, it's not a positive emotion. It's not a positive experience. But sometimes it rescues someone from abject depression. That if you're angry, if you're into that emotion, you might be able to climb out of true apathy, not feeling at all, not being alive at all. Uh, I always think of King Lear when he is feeling like he's going mad and he says something like, touch me with noble anger. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's pleading not to uh, be lost and awash in tears. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think there's a basic wisdom there that hatred and anger-related emotions are sometimes used, as Sullivan said, as defenses against more helpless feelings. And mm -hmm. Sullivan said that anger is an emotion that we learn by watching our parents use it against anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I like that. That's yeah. That's, well, that's, yeah. that's basic Sullivan. But mm -hmm. so uh, I'm not advertising for hatred. Obviously, it <laughs> creates havoc in the world and it's horrible. But it is... But I think it's important to understand its function in order to help people move past hatred in a sense. The function it's serving to, at least in that person's experience, save them from something worse. Mm -hmm. I always am thinking about what is the function of something. Right, right. It's, um, you know, Frome's book, The Art of Loving, yeah. um, and there happens to be a book, I can never remember the author's name, he happens to be a, I think, I think he's a modern analyst, I've never heard of this person ever since, but it's called The Art of Hating, that yep. in a way, to find ways to um, mm -hmm. not be destructive with one's hate um, is, uh, mm -hmm. is really, is, is a, an incredible art, if you're able to utilize your hatred to... Um, non-destructive ends. Um, well, we would not uh, want to fight the destruction of the environment if we didn't fight, if we didn't have right. fight in us, if we didn't feel anger at what's being done. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't, you know, anger, I've always called anger the motor, the motor of life. Right. It's, a, it's a motor. It gets you going. Right. Important to pay attention to, for sure. Um, it can get you, you know, it's, it's a form. I mean, I, I agree. It's like listening to a patient's anger and, um, it can co help them to cohere. I mean, of course yep. what we're seeing, we're seeing now is forms of hatred that are just are unbound and unarticulate their, their, their action, not, not yeah. words. Um, yeah. I always try to like love hate. I, I always try to love hate so that people don't have to hate mm -hmm. their hate and act, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah. Um, Chris, is there more that you wanted to talk about? Because we're we are, you know, over our fifty minutes. I knew we were going to be over. Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering if if Sandra, what she's going to be doing that's still in the field that she's retired. Is she doing anything? Is she still talking, going to conferences? What's uh, yeah. do you have anything planned? Yeah, I'm doing quite a bit. Uh, uh, in September, I'm uh, going to be uh, speaking in Cleveland for a, a few days. In October, I'm going to be at the Psychology and the Other conference in Boston, uh, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I've never been to one of those conferences, so it's uh, particularly interesting to me. Well, um, mm -hmm. 
And then, uh, you know, in February, I'm doing APSA, uh, the American, and uh, also in Lisbon in February, there's going to be the IFPS, the International Federation of Psychoanalytic Societies, is meeting in Lisbon. And I'm going to do a plenary there and a few, probably a few other papers there. The reason I, I wanted to bring it up was because if anyone's listening, you know, you, we think of these people like Sullivan or Frieda Fromm mm -hmm. Reichman and they're kind of in the past, but we have Sandra with Thank us. You. And if you get a chance to go hear her talk, you should take that Thank chance you. because it is really, it, it'll be an experience. It's really, really remarkable. She's a, she's a real gift to the field. Thank you, Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. You, um, so without further ado, we're going to have to say goodbye and just thank Sandra um, thank for you. being with us. And, um, Yes, Chris, I love I love your questions. You have great radio yeah. voice. It's true. Uh, <laughs> what are you, a professional? <laughs> um, yeah, it's my, I'm, I'm retiring and switching. To oh, okay. <laughs> radio broadcasting soon, from psychoanalysis to radio broadcasting. Um, yeah. So um, thank you both. That's all for now. Um, we know there will be another book in two years. So, uh, <laughs> so or maybe a book of poetry. Um, yeah, who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So um, all for now, this is Tracy Morgan, your host, and Chris Bandini. Chris Bandini, yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.